Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Taylor Otwell. Based in Little Rock, Arkansas, Taylor is a web developer who is best known as the founder of the and maintainer of the Laravel PHP framework. I originally interviewed Taylor for this podcast nearly five years ago, where we discussed his background, the origins of Laravel, and his book Laravel from Apprentice to Artisan. With the upcoming Laracon EU conference happening soon in Amsterdam, we thought it would be a good idea to catch up with Taylor and see how the last half decade has treated him and Laravel, which has grown into a very popular framework with a thriving community around it and around the world. So thank you, Taylor, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thanks for having me back. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story, but we already covered that in our, in our original interview in 2013, and I'll make sure to link to that in the transcript for this episode. Um, so I was wondering if instead of giving us your origin story, you could give us some of the highlights of what you've been up to professionally since 2013. Yeah. Um, in 2013, uh, when I around the time I launched uh, my first book, that was the first time I ever made any money uh, at all on you know, based on my work on Laravel. And kind of since then, there's been a series of things, um, uh, both open source things and commercial things that I've done. Um, so some of the bigger highlights was in 2014, I um, launched Laravel Forge, which was my first uh, software as a service product uh, based around provisioning servers, PHP servers, um, and kind of specifically tailored for Laravel applications. And then... Um, about six months later, uh, January 1st, 2015, was my first day working full-time on Laravel. Um, so I left uh, Userscape, which was the company I was at for a few years, and then uh, worked full-time on Laravel. And then in February of 2015, just a few months later, I launched uh, my second software-as-a-service product, which was Envoyer.io, uh, which was a uh, deployment uh, product. And then um, I don't think I launched another commercial product for a few more years, but Laravel kind of continued to grow, especially as I was working on it full time and had a lot more time to devote to uh, maintaining it, adding features and stuff like that. Um, I think in 2015, I launched Laravel Spark. It may have been 2015 or 2016, uh, which was my third uh, commercial Laravel product. Um, sort of... Which helps people uh, build their own SaaS businesses as sort of a starting point uh, template sort of thing built on top of Laravel to build services like Forge or Envoy or that charge people monthly or yearly or whatever. And I just sort of took all the lessons I learned uh, building Forge and Envoy and tried to build it into a good starting point for people, for myself and for other people. And then, um, launched uh, quite a few new uh, Laravel features. Laravel Horizon, which is our queue monitoring package, a lot of features into the core of the framework. And then I uh, think about in 2017, um, I hired the first employee for Laravel. So that was a, a big uh, milestone. Uh, up until that point, it was just me uh, doing basically everything from developing to customer support and so on. And I hired uh, Mohammed Saeed, who's based in Egypt, and he had contributed to Laravel um, before I hired him um, in a, a few times. So I already knew that he was pretty talented. So I brought him on board and he helped, um, you know, helps with a lot, everything really, Forge, Envoy, and the open source side of the business. And then uh, the latest thing I just launched uh, just this week was Laravel Nova, which is a administration backend panel for Laravel, which was uh, my fourth uh, commercial um, package built on Laravel. And um, I've got some questions about all of those things, I think. Um, uh, but I'd like to ask, when did you decide to go full-time? Uh, I think when I originally interviewed you, uh, Laravel was still a side project. 
Yeah, I was pretty cautious. Uh, Laravel Forge, I launched it around uh, May of 2014. And, I, you know, it grew pretty quickly, actually. And I surpassed my salary um, at Userscape pretty quickly, but then also had to factor in, you know, additional costs of going out on my own, um, like health expense, health insurance expenses and other things like that. And uh, encouraged me, he thought it was big enough to go uh, full time on Laravel. So he kind of helped encourage me that direction. And then there was actually a little transition period where I did work part time for Userscape at the end of 2014, where I did every other week I was working at Userscape. And then every other week I was working on Laravel. So that was sort of a transition. And then finally in, in January, I went full time, but it was scary at first. Um, but, you know, just let Forge to grow enough to where it felt like it was a pretty safe decision. And yeah, you, you mentioned already another big decision you made was to hire your first employee, which is another commitment, you know, of, of your own, uh, you know, revenue, but also, you know, you have responsibilities towards the employee as well. And I, uh, in preparation for this interview, I, I watched an interview with interview with you where you, you talked about, or I think it might've been a blog post that you wrote on Medium where you talk about how you waited a little bit too long, you think. I was wondering mm. if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think I did. And I think um, a lot of open source developers just sort of you know, the open source project is their, their baby, so to speak. And they kind of nurture it and watch over it, uh, with this careful eye and don't want, or, you know, are hesitant to let other people jump in. And I think that's kind of how I was, um, for those first few years, I was a little too protective over everything and needed, even though I needed, um, extra help because it was just becoming overwhelming to manage, um, not only, I mean, the open source side alone, it really can be a full-time job for someone, but then adding on top of that three, uh, commercial products to support and maintain really needed to bring another employee on and probably need to bring a, a second employee on here soon. Um, but I think it's common, you know, in the other people I've talked to that start, uh, other developers I've talked to that start businesses, um, you know, they're scared to hire someone that they don't want to mess up their business or hire the wrong person or whatever. But I don't know. For me, it worked out pretty well, I think. And I wish I would have done it sooner. One of the things you've um, had to handle and I suppose enjoy handling uh, over the last few years has been the incredible growth of the popularity of Laravel. And um, there's there's quite a large ecosystem now, including the, the SaaS products that you've developed, um, the new versions that have come out. Uh, and there's also the uh, Laracons, um, including the online Laracon and the US Laracon and the EU Laracon and the Australian Laracon. Um, what was that like for you, you know, to now be the person at the center of all this all this growing attention? I mean, I imagine you started traveling more you started giving keynote presentations to growing audiences. Uh, mm -hmm. Did you did you talk to other people who've had that kind of experience about how they handled it? Um, no, uh, I really didn't uh, talk to anyone. So it was kind of a surreal experience at first and didn't know what to expect. And uh, Lara, the first Laracon, which was in 2012, we had about 90 people. And then it jumped to a couple hundred people. And then um, in 2014, 15 and 16 and 17 it was right around 500 and then this year was up to 850 so it's really ballooned up um and it's a pretty unique experience for me because where i live here in little rock arkansas i'm not not any center of attention at all and actually don't even know many other developers in person so um from i go from a very kind of normal quiet life to a big conference where, you know, people want to, uh, shake your hand or get an autograph or talk to you. And they're so excited. And it is a pretty night and day experience from my sort of daily routine, but it's always fun to meet everyone. And I like hearing their stories, um, you know, of how Laravel 
help them get a better job or help them support their family and stuff like that. So that's always sort of the best part for me. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask you something about strategy and the responsibilities that you have uh, being at the center of this of this web. Um, for example, do you have a, a kind of succession plan for what will happen if, uh, let's say, I mean, you know, you put it in the nicest way, you decide to do something else? Yeah. Um, yeah, there is sort of a, a succession plan. And there's actually several people that have um, sort of admin access over the Laravel open source projects and also know how to manage the commercial projects as well or how to uh, sort of take over the reins for them. And if there was any kind of, uh, you know, sudden tragedy. Um, but so that's all sort of uh, accounted for and planned for. And I hope it would be sort of a group effort between some of the key Laravel figures over the years, like um, Jeffrey Way and Matt Stauffer and Adam Wathen, I think all uh, sort of share admin access to the Laravel GitHub organization. So that was something kind of important um, over the last couple of years to sort of get solidified and put in place because it would sort of be mayhem um, if something like that happened. But yeah, just making sure that's all taken care of, especially when, you know, large companies depend on the framework and, um, you know, something will have to be done with uh, commercial businesses and stuff like that. So um, for those who might not know uh, really anything about open source or running a framework or being at the center of this, can you just describe a little bit about how it works? Yeah. So Laravel specifically is a sort of a starting point for building websites because a lot of web applications have the very same features uh, like logging in and storing things in a database like customer information and doing all those things every time you build a new web application from scratch takes a lot of time so Laravel sort of jump starts that process and gives you a lot of those features out of the box. And now open source, you know, means anyone can contribute to the source code of Laravel, the, you know, the code that makes it operate. And uh, people do that via GitHub. Anyone can contribute on uh, github.com by um, sending over the code uh, that they want to change or the modifications they want to make. And then I either can approve or reject it or, or ask for maybe some modifications. And, um, you know, it's a pretty interesting concept. People contribute from all over the world. There's, you know, thousands of contributors um, at this point. And, um, you know, you meet a lot of people and interact with a lot of people and interact with a lot of businesses. And, um, you know, the tough part for the open source maintainer is always just deciding, you know, what, what direction the project should take because everyone sort of has their idea of what should be uh, what should be inside of Laravel and what should not be inside of Laravel and things like that. So I sort of serve as curator, um, so to speak, at this point. And I still contribute features of my own, but a lot of my time is actually spent, you know, curating which pull request or which modifications I want to accept and which ones I want to reject. And that's actually a pretty tough job because um, people spend time uh, thinking about these modifications or making them and then they send them over and sometimes they get rejected. And that's honestly one of the worst parts of being an open source maintainer, but, um, you know, I think it's, it's a pretty positive experience usually for most people. Yeah. It's a, it's just such a fascinating model for those. I mean, for, you know, people who are into it, it's, it's all very familiar, but for those who aren't familiar with it, the idea of a project that has, you know, one person at the center of it, who's getting all these kind of, uh, suggestions, but not just suggestions, but actual work that people have done. Um, and then has to be the kind of gatekeeper to decide what to let in and what to let out uh, is just such a fascinating model. And yeah, I, I, I've, uh, you've spoken before about trying to handle that process by uh, introducing a, a sort of primary step where people can propose something. 
Uh, but, mm. that, but that comes with its own problems because it's not just a proposal for a feature. The feature or, or, or code has to be written. Um, mm. and, and then that introduces another level, another dimension to the decision that you have to make. And partly because you're going to have to be the one who has to fix, you might be the one who has to fix it if the person who mm -hmm. you know, uh, made the contribution goes away. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that worked out. Yeah, so um, we do have a Laravel idea board where people can contribute ideas. And like you said, that's it sounds good in theory, but it can still be difficult because I'm always sort of weighing two things. And an idea can look really good on paper, but it sort of depends on how much overhead, how much code that comes uh, that comes with the idea. So say someone proposes an idea, a lot of times my response will be, you know, it depends on what the code looks like, how much code there is and, um, you know, how many modifications we have to make to the framework because every modification we make sort of comes with this risk of breaking something else um, or, you know, causing some new unexpected behavior for people that relied on the old behavior. And so a lot of times it's people need to find a good balance of their feature is it brings value with very minimal overhead. So the the more value they can bring with the least amount of overhead, those are the most valuable pull requests you can make. And when the pendulum starts to swing to low value idea that doesn't really improve many people's experience with the framework, but also comes with a lot of extra code to maintain, those are sort of the pull requests that uh, you know I would I would probably reject. So it's always sort of weighing those two things on a scale and seeing how it comes out. And uh, what do you do when people get mad when you reject them? Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You know, it, a lot of times, to be honest, once I reject them, I'm sort of on to the next thing. And I don't, that's sort of the end of the interaction. So a lot of times I don't know more. I, sometimes I probably miss, you know, mean messages that people may have left me because I simply just don't go back to the thread and read them. But, um, you know, probably for the best, really, <laughs> that I don't. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds that sounds like the right thing. And so, um, actually, you've written uh, you, you've written a blog post where you talk about how your day goes. Um, and I really like the description of uh, how you, how you start your day by clearing out your inbox, basically, of both emails and pull requests. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit just about that that routine. Yeah. So usually, what I do first is just hop on um, our help desk and answer any of the customer support emails that came in overnight first. Usually, Muhammad has made a dent in those because he's six hours ahead of me. So he's already kind of uh, gotten up and answered a few of those emails and some of them will be left for me either if he can't handle them or they require uh, something only I have access to, then I'll take care of those. And then I'll uh, jump over to GitHub and I usually try to uh, keep the total open pull requests for Laravel around you know, 10 to 15 pull requests. I don't like it to go much over that because it can start to pile up really quickly. So usually that means I need to manage about five to 10 pull requests a day uh, just to sort of maintain that number. Otherwise, it's going to start growing um, out of control. Um, so once I sort of get that taken care of and um, move past both of those, thing, those things, then I can kind of hack on whatever code I'm working on that day. It could be you know, Laravel Forge or some totally new idea or fixing a bug or whatever else. It's interesting. Um, when I was when I was reading about that, uh, it reminded me of um, back in in a former life. I was I 
uh, would grade first year English major papers uh, in university. And it was always, you know, whenever you sort of opened a new one, um, you had no idea what to expect because, you know, anybody could be in that class and anybody could be, you know, at any level uh, and also at any level of um, commitment, I suppose, to uh, doing well. Do you, do you have that kind of experience whenever you open up a new pull request? You know, is this, is it sort of readily identifiable that, oh, this is someone who's, you know, totally new and this is their first attempt at things? Yeah, sometimes um, I do have a pretty good idea. Sometimes it's people I've seen before, so I, I sort of know what to expect. Um, actually, most of the time it's people I haven't seen. That's usually new people. Um, so everyone is is kind of different. Uh, um, and also, you know, with an open source framework, there's a lot of documentation. There's a lot of uh, uh, sort of internal code documentation. So many of the contributors are not native English speakers. So that's usually one thing I do have to kind of polish up is I'll just kind of go in and I don't actually have to reject their pull request. I can just pull it down onto my computer and just sort of uh, massage it a little bit and, and clean up some of the syntax and grammar. And then I can push it back up and merge it. So they still get, um, you know, sort of a credit, so to speak, for contributing that code. But I'm able to just sort of polish it up a little bit before it goes into the framework. So that's actually what I do usually if things are they're close, but they're not quite perfect, rather than just sort of rejecting it, rejecting it and making them try again, I'll just sort of try to finish it out for them. Usually it only takes uh, a few minutes and then get it merged in. Um, one of the really interesting things about this structure and process is that uh, Laravel is constantly changing. Uh, I believe that you are on a six-month um, schedule for releases of new versions. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, if there were someone from kind of the old school, uh, maybe someone who isn't all that familiar with how software works, they might be hearing this, like, like let's say, a, a CEO, uh, and thinking, oh, my God, uh, I would never let that into my into my company because it's changing so quickly. I mean, you know, this is a world where, you know, the VA in the United States is still using calendaring software from the 1980s. Um, mm -hmm. And I know that Laravel moved at a certain point to uh, long-term support, which actually has a kind of technical meaning. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, how the timing of that decision worked for you and, and what long-term support means in this context. Yeah, so that was a growing sort of demand we heard from people was that uh, usually it's their boss, you know, it's not them, but their boss is not comfortable with um, maybe open source software as an entire concept or they're not comfortable with something moving that fast, like you said. So, um, they'll ask for something called a long-term support guarantee. Um, which means that typically we would only fix bugs in a Laravel release for the six months that that release is active. And then we would move on to the next release and everyone is sort of expected to upgrade. But with a long-term support release, which we do every two years instead of every six months, we actually fix bugs on that release for two years, and then we fix security-related bugs for three years. So you're actually, quote-unquote, safe uh, using that code for three years, and then you would have to upgrade to the next version or just sort of accept the responsibility of maintaining it yourself from that point forward. Um, and so that, you know, I was... I had firsthand experience with that because I worked in a large organization at my first programming job. And not only was long-term support something they would have been interested in, but there was skepticism of open source really in general. Um, so it can be an uphill battle in some environments. So we had to add that, um, you know, a few years ago to help developers in those situations make a better pitch to their um their bosses on why they should go with Laravel or why they should be comfortable using Laravel. And uh, what would you say is the most common product that Laravel is used to make? 
Ooh, it's, I've seen such a wide variety of things. I've heard of Laravel being used in airliners. I've heard of every, everything from that to Laravel being, you know, used to build simple invoice uh, software that freelancers use to build their clients after they build a website for them, all the way to Bitcoin mining applications. Um, so the variety is really vast and the types of companies using it are really varied. So some of the larger companies that I've heard of using Laravel or I've seen job postings related to Laravel or companies like Starbucks, Apple, um, NBC, New York times, um, you know, those are sort of the household names that I've seen job postings, um, asking for Laravel experience. Uh, but I, I hear so many crazy stories at conferences, really, um, probably the airliner, uh, software and which was some sort of maintenance reporting software that the pilots could use from the plane, um, if they had an issue and then the Bitcoin, uh, mining software is probably some of the more interesting things I've heard of. That's really fascinating to hear uh, the airliner story because, as I'm sure, as I'm sure you know, it's so highly uh, regulated and mm-hmm. uh, everything is examined uh, in the minutest of details. So uh, that's that's just amazing to hear that Laravel's at the point where it's being used for those kinds of processes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not to worry people. I don't think it's a flight critical uh, <laughs> um, part of the airplane. It's just sort of a bug reporting system that's built um, in a web uh, way, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, speaking of products, uh, built using Laravel, you've got your own products built using Laravel. Um, and you, you mentioned you, uh, use a SAS model, uh, to fund your work. And I had a question, uh, I've got, I want to ask you specifically about Nova, which you just announced very recently. Um, but how do you decide what to work on next? Um, a lot of stuff is sort of born out of my own needs. So, um, going back to 2014, when I built Forge, I was constantly, having to build web servers from scratch, um, set up all the software on them, configure them and things like that. And I really wanted an automated way to do that so I could quickly spin them up. And mainly for the purpose of testing Laravel, I needed a quick web server to test Laravel on in production. And I was doing that a lot, it felt like. And so I built Forge to automate that whole process. And then I needed a way to deploy updates to the website with, you know, without having any downtime. And so I built Envoy as sort of a solution to that that, uh, problem. And then similar things with spark. And then with Nova, you know, I, I have these several businesses, but I had no good administration panel for them to go in and, you know, dig into, um, if I needed to look at a customer's account or update some of their information for them or refund a charge for them or things like that. I was doing those things all very manually and required me to log into several different places or even run a manual database query and things like that. And I really needed a better way to manage all that. And that's sort of what Laravel Nova was birthed out of, uh, was that need. So a lot of it's just driving, you know, scratching my own itch, so to speak. And sometimes I don't really have a readily identifiable problem that's really bothering me at the time. And so I, I don't have, um, you know, a new product idea for a little while. But it seems like one eventually kind of turns up um, just as I go about my daily developer life. And I just sort of latch on to that. And how do you market your, your products? Uh, right now, almost exclusively through Twitter and um, the Laravel website itself, and uh, sometimes I write on my Medium blog, but I've done very little um, actual advertising. I've run a few ads on the PHP subreddit on reddit.com, and 
I think I may have done some promoted tweets sometime run a lot of advertisement, I think mainly because my Twitter following has grown over the years and it's just quicker and easier to send out a tweet or I, I have a mailing list I could send out an email to. So um, really pretty simple as far as marketing goes. Um, and, you know, that's sort of the the value of having the audience from all the work I did on open source sort of gave me this audience that then was interested in the things I was building. Whereas if I was trying to build a, uh, some sort of application from scratch and didn't really have a following, I think it would be much more challenging to launch a successful business that way. So I'm always pretty impressed when someone can kind of build a new business and is not, um, you know, quote unquote tech famous in any way, but is able to build a successful business out of it. Cause I think it would be a lot more challenging. Speaking of, uh, the business side of things, um, there was a recent post on Hacker News by Paul Dix called it's time for the open source community to get real. Uh, and a quote from, I don't know if you saw it, but there's a quote from it that probably captures the essence of it where he says, in short, it takes continued investment and that must be subsidized somehow when he's talking mm-hmm. about open source frameworks. Now I, I confess I'm not deep in the open source community and I'm not familiar with you know the strength of the debates but I was one I, I suspect you are and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your position on this issue so he's talking about open source contributors and maintainers being compensated in some way yes or, yeah yeah it's a big um, it's a big you know problem in open source because a lot of people build these libraries and people are uh, pretty demanding uh, over their time, really, and want the bugs fixed. And there's usually very little, if any, compensation, which then leads to, you know, other personal problems for the developer or burnout or things like that. So there's been a few efforts, and I've seen a few different approaches for how to um, how maintainers try to build some sort of um, compensation out of their product, which sometimes people just ask for donations. But I, I feel like a lot of times very few people donate. And if they do, it may only be a few dollars. You know, it's not enough to make a sizable dent in their living expenses. And then, um, you know, kind of a growing uh, trend is releasing sort of information products like books or video courses, uh, which was, you know, the first thing I did is release a book on Lean Pub. And that's actually I've seen uh, several people be fairly successful with that um, as long as um you know, you have sort of an interesting topic and an audience, that's a a good way to go. And then I feel like building an actual application is pretty rare because a lot of open source libraries are just not really conducive to turning into a a full size business like Laravel Forge. Um, So I don't know, it's tough. And I've tried to support open source maintainers myself by, um, we sponsor uh, Vue, which is a JavaScript um, open source library, and sponsor Fly System, which is a PHP library. But libraries we use in Laravel um, on a regular basis and that really improve the quality of the experience in Laravel, I try to support those things because I, I know how it is to you know, not get anything in return and just have nothing but demands in your inbox, basically. So I, I, I think there's, there's still room for a lot of improvement in the whole area. Um, donations, a lot of times just doesn't pan out, but not everyone can start a, a whole business or has the time. So I don't know, you know, I think there's room for innovation around that and hopefully it improves. Yeah, speaking of innovation around that, you actually have a model of your own on, on Patreon uh, that people mm-hmm. can use to support Laravel, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about that. Yeah, so my approach to Patreon was um, I was really interested in trying to turn Patreon into a sponsorship 
uh, model where I had several expensive tiers, much more expensive than you would see on some patrons where I had, you know, a $750 a month tier, which gets you your own page on the Laravel.com website, talking about your development agency. And, um, all of these tiers are geared towards companies that build Laravel websites for other people. So consultancies or development agencies, and then all the way up to a $2,500 a month tier, um, to sort of have the top spot, on that page because I felt like I sort of knew that if there was low dollar amounts on the tiers, it just would never really be, um, a meaningful amount of money, um, to run a Patreon. So, uh, you know, I've given that advice to a few people is try to get five or six sponsors at a higher value rather than trying to just setting like a $1 tier on their Patreon and, and getting, you know, maybe 150 people to sign up for that and making $150, try to get even just three or four, uh, sponsors at $500 a month. And, you know, you're, you're making a bigger dent and sort of what you need to work on it part-time or full-time. Um, so that's sort of the approach I took for it, which has actually been really nice for both parties actually, because the sponsors, I give them other benefits like each month they can schedule a 30 minute or hour long video call with me with their development team. We can chat about Laravel and it's good for me because I get to talk to their developers about Laravel. I ask them, you know, what problems they're having. Um, it helps me improve the framework and get sort of firsthand feedback from a development team that's building lots of real world, real world projects. And it's good for them because as they're sort of pitching their services to clients, you know, it's helpful for them to say, you know, we have direct access to the maintainer of the framework. We were in a Slack room with uh, Taylor Otwell where we can call him on Skype. And that sort of lends them credibility and makes customers more comfortable with their services. They know they have, you know, good access into um, the maintainer of the framework. So it's, it's worked out really well. Um, and yeah, I think been helpful for both sides. You mentioned burnout, um, and that reminded me of something you talked about in an interview once about doing the hardest stuff first um, when you start a new project. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, whenever I'm starting a new project, I always sort of have in my head a few areas that I know are just going to be really gnarly and hard to figure out. And rather than sort of kick those down the road and work on easy stuff first for, let's say, three or four weeks of knocking out easy stuff, I would rather just know up front if there's going to be a substantial roadblock, um, to the project. So I'll just try to tackle those hardest things because I would rather just fail early, you know, in the first few days rather than sort of work on easy stuff for a month and then get a month into this project and realize, Oh, there's a fundamental flaw in this whole idea. And now I've lost a month of my time basically because I sort of put it off. And so I always like to dive right in to the hardest stuff for that reason. And, it, I think it saves time in the long run, really. Uh, speaking of marketing, um, I guess my second last question to you is what's what's your next product? I mean, I know Nova's totally new, uh, but I think you've written something about a product called Horizon. Yeah, we, we launched Horizon, uh, so that's out. So ne next products for me, I would like to take, um, I would like to improve Horizon, improve Laravel Forge. Um, we have a visual refresh of Envoyer that's already been designed, so we need to launch that. But, you know, I'm kind of reaching a point where I think I've got enough um, sort of irons in the fire, so to speak. And 
I think it's going to be hard to keep expanding and, and launching these new products without uh, more hiring, I guess, which we talked about. But right now I'm sort of in that stage where I just launched a product. So I'm just sort of waiting to see, you know, what's that next itch that that needs to be scratched or what's the next uh, problem I'm having. And it hasn't turned up yet. Uh, so right now the plan is to just sort of improve what's out there. But if something turns up, you know, um, may have to jump on it. Um, I often like to end my interviews by asking uh, a selfish question. Um, and in this case, I can, I can tell that you're a Star Trek fan um, from <laughs> the examples you use in demos and from the uh, portrait of Spock and Kirk behind you. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I wanted to ask you what you thought of Discovery, the new CBS series. I've only watched the first episode because <laughs> I was in the middle of watching Star Trek Enterprise and I'm almost finished with Enterprise. I only have five more episodes left and I didn't want to uh, jump into a new series before I finished Enterprise. So I've actually stayed very spoiler free on Discovery and I don't have any idea what happens. Um, I've only seen that first episode. Um, so I'm actually really looking forward to watching it. Um, I actually saw today that the blue, uh, blue is coming out and I think it was October, November. So I don't know. I don't know if I'll make it till then. I think I'll finish enterprise before then. So I may have to watch it uh, on CBS all access, but I'm really looking forward to it. And I hope I can go to a, uh, Star Trek convention in Las Vegas sometime, but it always seems to sort of conflict with, uh, Laracon or vacation or Laracon EU, but maybe next year. Uh, I guess then I'll ask you one more question um, since you haven't seen Discovery. Um, uh, so if you had to guess what they were going to do with their new Picard series, what would your what would your guess be? Oh, gosh, there's so many cool ideas. Um, you know, I, I, I might be kind of on Earth and maybe in a in a, either a senior position with Starfleet or maybe even retired. And he'll be, I think, some uh Either he'll be in some mentorship role or some quest, you know, will come up from the past um, that he embarks on. But I think a, a cool tie in I would like to see. Um, I don't know if they'll do it, but is somehow tie in his inner light uh, episode with his new series, because I feel like that was such a would have been such like a huge moment uh, in his life to sort of live this whole other life and have children and have a wife and then just sort of in a blink of an eye be back to his old life, which I feel like would really change somebody and be <laughs> a pretty big deal. Um, so I, I think it would be cool if they explored that in some way. I don't know how they do it, um, but those are kind of my uh, my realistic expectations and what I my optimistic hopes would be. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. I, I um, my, my two sort of, uh, I guess, hopes or expectations are uh, one that he'll be, um, you know, a retired admiral and he'll have heard about some kind of lost civilization at the edges mm. of, of uh, the galaxy and he'll be on a long term voyage. Yeah, um, I can uh, see that because of his love of archaeology. Um, and the other one is this is a more cynical one, which is that uh, the Federation will have collapsed and he'll basically be like an eye patch captain of the or admiral of the last remaining fleet. And it'll basically be Battlestar Galactica in the Star yeah. Trek universe. Yeah, that would be interesting, too. It would be a big shakeup, you know, for this the sort of Star Trek world. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, thanks a lot, Taylor, for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. We did it on a little bit of short notice because of the Laracon EU uh, conference coming up, which LeanPub is humbly sponsoring to the extent that we can. Uh, and I know you'll be speaking there, and I know everyone in Amsterdam will be looking forward to hearing from you. So uh, thanks very much, Taylor, for uh, being on the LeanPub podcast. All right. Thanks. Thanks.